Thanks for joining us at BIB Today, the daily podcast from the Newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. You know, we might feel like we have a little bit of election fatigue in our country with so much repetition of who gets elected. But, of course, there's been in Australia in the last little while an election that changed the government, uh, set up some probably some different priorities for the time ahead. Um, Canada, Canada, though, remains a pretty important trade partner. And, of course, British Columbia being the closest uh, in a you know a little hop, step, and jump uh, of about eighteen or nineteen hours to get there uh, is um, is of course the closest uh, to it, um, and and in a lot of cases the importance of uh, of its representation in our country uh, is is something that we we don't pay enough attention to. I think uh, our guest today is the country's representative of their country and ours, uh, the High Commissioner Scott Ryan. He's no stranger to elected politics, even. Um, having uh, having been in the Senate, having been in Parliament in Australia, and um, he was the youngest person ever elected into the Senate. I I, I remember when I was one of the younger people doing things. No, I, I can't claim that I wasn't the youngest. I think I might have been the youngest person who became president, president. of the Senate. Yeah, president. There were younger people there than I. All right. He's been in Canada since December, so you uh, you you left your summer for our winter, and now you get to experience our summer. I did. Yes, we we landed here just before Christmas, and my my two young boys saw snow the first time when they walked out of Ottawa Airport. Never seen snow. Never seen snow. Oh, well, that is a good experience. It was that was nice. Canada put on a white Christmas for 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 our first Christmas here. Somewhat our pleasure. Uh, (laughs) We we don't always love uh, the depth of the snow, but it it is it is lovely. Um, So welcome. Uh, What happens um, when there is a uh, a government change uh, in terms of what happens inside the the Foreign Service uh, and what you know what kind of preparation do you have to make what kinds of briefings have to take place what sort of books get arrayed in order to help the new government understand so uh, essentially what happens across the government is all um, government departments will prepare briefing packs for uh, the government being re-elected or an opposition being elected to office uh, and immediately after effectively the result is clear uh, those briefing packs will be provided by senior officials to deal with whoever the leader of the party who's going to be prime minister directs uh, in australia this time it was particularly fast um, we will often do a transition to government after an election over the course of a week, maybe two, if it's a very close result. Uh, but on this occasion, uh, because of the meeting of the Quad in Tokyo with mm. the leaders of Australia, uh, Japan, India and the United States, uh, it was always going to be quick if there was a transition. So uh, the outgoing government conceded on the Saturday night, uh, the in-government government, government um, made a uh, speech outlining his priorities, uh, reflecting the election result. Uh, he and several ministers were sworn in on Monday, and I think it was less than four hours later uh, they were on a plane to Tokyo, the foreign minister and the prime yeah. minister, yeah. Uh, to attend the uh, the security dialogue. I will say that was one of the fastest appearances internationally of any leader I've ever seen. It was it, it was fast, even by Australian standards, but it was foreseen because yeah. that date for that conference had been set months ahead. Yeah. Uh, when uh, I don't want you to necessarily divulge every last thing that you're going to send uh, back home uh, and all of this, but do you get uh, to inject a little bit of your own impressions of the country, a little bit of your own impressions of the political climate here 
uh, in in the advice that you're giving. One of the roles, uh, as well as being representative of the Australian government here, is to you know provide feedback on developments here and what's going on here. Uh, so right across our foreign service and right across the footprint we have overseas, because it also exists in other departments of of the Commonwealth of the federal government, um, you know that advice is sought and provided back. Yeah, and and um, you've only been here for five six months, but uh, what do you think of this place? Oh, look, it's a it's a fantastic opportunity. These roles um, are a real privilege, firstly, to be able to represent your country. Uh, I knew a bit about Canada. Um, my academic background when I was a student involved a bit of a study of um, Canadian constitutional arrangements and intergovernmental arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are so many apparent similarities between our countries despite the distance. You know, we are large countries, we are federations, we have different levels of government, uh, we have traditional cooperation in security spheres, we have the Commonwealth tradition, uh, we have been... Um, you know, when I go to World War One memorials, and I did one in the Somme a few years ago, uh, I went to the Canadian uh, memorial as part of my journey to the Australian and New Zealand memorials on Anzac Day. So the links go back quite a long way. It is one of Australia's oldest diplomatic posts. We uh, opened up here in 1940. Um, Canada opened up in Australia, I think I was told, before we even federated as a nation in 1900 with the first trade commissioner's office, I think it was in Sydney in the 1890s. So those links go back a long way. Um, what you, a couple of things I think when you, when you come to Canada that you don't necessarily pick up until you come here. Uh, Australians aren't often used to coming somewhere bigger. You know, we're a large country spread out. Uh, you are a larger country. And, you know, I did a check on Google Maps. You're essentially almost 1,200 kilometres wider yeah. than Australia. Yeah, it we're, is a, we're big. Uh, it's a very big country. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, but we don't have this profound outback. <laughs> you, have a, you, have, you have a north. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You, you, you have a north. Uh, I think there's a bit more regional variation uh, across Canada, partly distance, partly cultural, partly historic. Uh, so getting out of Ottawa and understanding the differences between the provinces and the cities. Mm. You're a slightly more decentralised population. We have more people, say, in our top five cities. Uh, so, and then, of course, there's the obvious Australian observation is you have a very tough climate. <laughs> yeah, we have a tough climate. Uh, and we're also we're in the backyard of, of the superpower, and that, and that affects us. And, and you have your own issues with another emerging superpower in China. Um, where are the similarities, do you think, uh, in terms of our, our um, uh, if you want to call them concerns or our, our challenges with China and yours? Well, I'll speak to Australia. I don't necessarily think I try and avoid speaking on behalf of you know other countries. Um, but you know, our prime minister, a new prime minister, and our foreign minister have made observations both before and after the election that the challenges we have in our relationship are, are because China has changed, not because Australia has changed. Um, they have been exhibited in disagreements over important and fundamental international norms like the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Uh, and the view from Australia that some of the trade sanctions applied to some of our goods are inappropriate and they should be reconsidered as a way if the relationship is to particularly improve. Um, you know, it is a significant trading partner for Australia. There are significant links in terms of in terms of people, uh, but there has been a change in the uh, forward-leaning nature um, of the government of China over the last few years, which has placed the relationship under stress. Yeah. One of the uh, challenges that we grapple with here is is the uh, question of ownership and the question of investment in our country, and and we seem to have 
to want it two different ways. We 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 rather like the investment because it it generates prosperity. We don't tend to like the ownership too much because it then has a, a sense of either dominance or presence that uh, that takes away a little bit of the of the agency of the sovereignty of the country. Where is Australia sat on this? Well, we've had a long-standing foreign investment review review board process uh, that's overseen by the Treasurer of Australia, uh, where decisions can be taken in the national interest, and it is a decision that the Treasurer can take. Underpinning that is a series of advice that goes to the Treasurer, and part of that now incorporates national security advice. It's non-country specific. It looks at Australia's um, national interests uh, and where there are sensitive sectors uh, and then decisions are made and announced. Uh, And obviously some sectors are more um, sensitive than others, uh, but we make it effectively about the sector, the economy and Australia's national interest. It's not country specific in that sense. Yeah. Uh, When... You take a look at the kind of relationship that, say, British Columbia has with Australia. Um, I mean, you're you're here in summer, and uh, we're starting to get actually the influx of, mm. of uh, some workers here from Australia who come here for uh, for the summer, and some of them actually want to stay, but many of them just go home after this. Um, what where are the the big areas of um, of trade and uh, and relationships between a province like British Columbia and the country? So. Let's talk about the post-COVID world here, uh, or not the post-COVID world, yeah, the new COVID world, yeah, the with COVID world, yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously the, those people-to-people links that consisted of a few thousand students a year exchanging, the working holidays where you would see younger Canadians primarily come to Australia and, and vice versa, that all obviously was limited during the era of travel restrictions. Uh, what I can say is that since the direct flights started late last year, I think it was a few days before I came, I understand travel bookings are quite strong. Uh, and in fact, um, I couldn't get on the first flight um, that we, tr- we we wanted to to actually come to Canada. They bookings were so strong, so I think those Doesn't people the community give you uh, you know flight, uh, flight privileges. No, well, you know, not at all. You just got to jump on the plane like everyone else. But okay, okay. It, to me, it was a positive sign that I think both our countries have a lot of pent up demand, particularly amongst those who would have travelled yeah. and were going through that stage of life where they'll have the working holiday experience, the travel experience. Uh, definitely in Australia, there's pent up demand about that and there is lots of travel uh, being undertaken and we're trying to encourage some of that domestically as well because like yourselves we we did have a domestic tourism industry that was hit quite hard so I think that will start to increase Uh, I've been speaking to universities and they're you know re-engaging their their exchange and travel footprint as well Um, one of the things that strikes me is you know British Columbia and when I've been here over the last few days people talk to me about how occasionally they feel distant from the centre or the east of the country it it is a different economy Uh, and one of the familiarities is that more Australians come here both for work and tourism it does seem like a long way when you're on the 16-hour flight, but it is also a lot closer than the other part, than the than the east of the country. So I think those people-to-people links will increase. I think uh, the university links and the student links will um, establish a new normal. But there does appear to be a demand there. And then you have those um, businesses that uh, will use um, Vancouver or British Columbia as a stepping stone into the Canadian market, or even as I'm increasingly learning, um, sort of the northwestern American market. Yeah. We have the benefit here, uh, in both in British Columbia and really across the country, of a of a trade link that is a drive away um, to really the world's biggest manufacturer, and the big uh, and of course the, the home of the 
most voracious consumers anywhere. Um, and yet, of course, during the pandemic uh, and preceding the pandemic, even you could start to see some supply chain issues emerge. Um, they they were exacerbated considerably by the pandemic. What's the experience again in Australia around around the the importation of goods, around export, around manufacturing, and and how that has in a lot of ways disrupted you know kind of traditional well flowing economies. So we have a slightly different economy. We, you know, we're at the end of a, a, end of the line in many ways. We're we, we're not as integrated in a single economy. And, I, and again, I think it's one thing that people from outside Canada, you sort of strikes you when you speak to businesses here, universities, businesses of all types, the degree of economic integration over the border uh, uh, in terms of particularly manufacturing, but it doesn't have to be things like auto manufacturing, it's food manufacturing, it's a whole range of things, that the nature of that economy is something that is unique, I think, to this relationship between the United States and Canada. Uh, we had similar challenges around you know, um, sovereign capacity to produce at the early outset, things like face masks and yeah. things like PPE that we all needed uh, because you know we are a country that has reduced trade barriers over the last 30 to 40 years and so some of those uh, elements of local manufacturing capacity had gone by the by and yeah. and so um, governments have now looked at what do we need to produce here yeah. we were fortunate enough to have uh, the old Commonwealth Serum Laboratories CSL oh. uh, which is a vaccine manufacturer mm. and now a major one of the world's largest blood products companies. As uh, you know, that was one of our real deficiencies. Uh, and, you know, we historically had that because we were a long way from anywhere. Uh, and so that was privatised, I think, um, would be 30 years ago now, about 1992, and it's become a global leader. But we had that domestic capacity to manufacture the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Uh, and like Canada now, um, the governments are putting in money and putting up capital to sustain or to develop a domestic mRNA manufacturing capacity because that does appear to be the way of so many future medical opportunities, not just with vaccines but with therapeutics. Uh, so we face similar challenges. Uh, and in some ways, we were more isolated, and our governments got very nimble, um, very expert at trying to source the products we needed in a very competitive world. It, are there um, relatively conclusive learnings, you think, uh, out, of, out of the pandemic in terms of what uh, the roles of government, roles of private sector ought to be in preparing for what will doubtless be another pandemic someday? I think that's a... I think there undoubtedly are, and there undoubtedly will be more, uh, because it's a work in progress. I mean, I made the mistake earlier of talking about post-COVID. It's not post-COVID, it's with COVID, the yeah. world. So what do we learn from that? And we still don't know what challenges will emerge. Uh, but at all times, you know, our ability to predict uh, epidemiologically the risk of, you know, what new variants might be, our ability to respond to them, our ability to fine-tune our health system... Uh, if this had happened, imagine only 15 years ago, the capacity for people to even work from home would be different. I mean, technology uh, was at a, at a point where we could all make a shift, or many of us, not all of us, to remote working. There was a period of remote schooling uh, that was very difficult for many. I mean, I had remote schooling children as well. Uh, but imagine doing it in the days before video conferencing was available. It's, it, it's quite extraordinary um, how difficult and different the world would have been. We have, uh, I mean, we've gone here from five days a week, sometimes six days a week for people coming in, uh, to having a lot of people living in other parts of the country working for us. Same thing there? 
Uh, yeah, it's, and it seems to be a different experience across the Australian cities. Um, mm. I know it's different in Canada. Different cities and different provinces had different COVID experiences, and that's very true of Australia. Uh, so uh, my old hometown, Melbourne, was probably hit the hardest and longest, but Sydney was also hit pretty hard. Uh, Perth in Western Australia was able to close its border and effectively maintained a, 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 a an environment that it was protected from COVID and it reopened earlier this year with a high vaccination rate and the Omicron wave that uh, has caused it serious problems, but uh, it didn't have anywhere near the period of remote schooling. So I, to be honest, I actually had to relocate from my home city of Melbourne to Canberra because of my last job on mm. a day's notice with uh, the family in the car, with the cat in the back and the bikes on the roof and relocated to Canberra. And so I'm I not lived... saying you had empathy for Novak Djokovic, but obviously he had, he had to relocate as well, the whole other thing. I could, well, you know, Australia, like here, um, we had a very strong public support for vaccination. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we have, I think, a slightly higher rate of vaccination than here, but, you know, it's in the, the 90s, I think, of the, um, the double dose and um, a bit behind that on the third dose. So I haven't checked the figures lately. And so there was strong public support for people yeah. coming into the country saying, well, we've done it, so should you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see now even in Canada where we have baseball season and Americans yeah. aren't allowed to come up into the, in, and play if they haven't been vaccinated. I did not realise that. Teams yeah. are uh, arriving in Toronto minus two or three or four players at some times. Um, I hadn't caught up with we're, that. We're still, being, we're still being pretty sticky about it. Um, uh, so you've, you've now settled in, I presume, and, and uh, you, you get to kind of map out priorities as a high commissioner, no question of what it is that you're, which, which spots you're going to pick and which ones leave alone uh, in terms of talking to Canadian author- authorities about what progress can be made between the two countries. Are you beginning to identify what your, your identity is as a high commissioner and, and how that, how that you know, might translate? Yeah, well, I think we've got to always be aware that most of our jobs in, in, in the public space, I think, are, are dealing with what the world throws at us in many ways. Mm. Um, so um, when I came here in December, um, I don't think I would have predicted the, you know, the illegal actions and invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which, mm. you know, our, our officials have been talking a lot about. We're fully supportive of um, the stand that NATO and, and Canada has led in um, supporting Ukrainian resistance. Uh, so that is one of the classic events that um, you don't necessarily predict, but does take up a lot of your time. My predecessor and staff, um, I don't think they came to Canada thinking they would be dealing with COVID and the pandemic and the workload and the way of work that that, that, that entailed. Uh, but I think, um, from my perspective, um, it, there, there are incredibly strong relations across uh, our two countries that in many ways are also outside the foreign service. So our government departments across a whole range of policy areas have a great deal to do with one another. Um, the government in Australia and the new foreign minister have pointed out uh, that a couple of their key priorities, for which I think there is great opportunity for alignment with Canada, are uh, on uh, a uh, raising ambition on dealing with climate change, which mm-hmm. is particularly acute in our region, in the Pacific, of course, because of the unique vulnerability of those nations and peoples. And also, we both have uh, the tragic legacy of Indigenous dispossession and racism yeah. uh, and all the consequences that have flowed from that. Uh, and as uh, countries that were settler or colonised countries, we are both dealing with the legacy of that uh, and trying to right that wrong and address that entrenched intergenerational disadvantage. And your country is a little farther ahead in terms of a timeline in, in the experience on this. I mean, for, I Canada, would... for Canada, this is still feeling like a relatively recent um, emergence 
of a, of a political movement in order to ensure that we get that form of reconciliation. It's interesting you say that because I think um, a lot of Australians who are more uh, who are very familiar with this space might say the same about Canada. I think we had different um, the same tragedy and events mm-hmm. uh, and the same legacy of that. Uh, different events happened and we're dealing with it at different things at different speeds. So um, I would suggest there are some areas, I think, in Canada where they are a bit further ahead of Australia. It's interesting that you say that. But in essence, there is that common experience and there are lots of learnings, I think, that can be applied from one to the other. Just as our agencies were talking to each other, for example, during the initial stages of the pandemic and the the unique risk to uh, Indigenous communities that both countries presented. You would find in British Columbia that that actually that isn't the national picture in a certain way. We are, I think, quite a bit ahead of where the rest of the country is. And and, um, and I think that that has set us up in a very good way, a very strong Mm. way for a kind of a nation-to-nation economic participation that really wasn't even discussed 10 or 15 years ago on any kind of considerable way. The rest of the country, I think, still is still kind of slow-poking. It, it was one of the issues our Prime Minister spoke about when they spoke, and I think they spoke only four days after, three or four days after the change of government. It was one of the early conversations, mm-hmm. uh, and it reinforced what the Foreign Minister stated during the campaign, which is to develop and establish a First Nations diplomacy agenda. Uh, and that is something that there are unique opportunities for Australia and Canada to work with, both on shared experience, redressing disadvantage, uh, and a lot of the detailed policy work that needs to be done to achieve that. Yeah. In talking about climate change, uh, I remember interviewing a scholar from Tasmania, actually, around uh, forest fires, forest management. And, uh, and of course, we've had not only the grand heat dome here mm. last summer, that was just extraordinary for our country. But we still seem to be contending with forest management in order to deal with it. You, you fly over British Columbia, you would see just how much there is, but how much mm. has also been taken from us by fire and all of this. Is is that one area? We, we do send yeah. we send crews to each other when uh, when things go wrong. Uh, but what, what, is, what kind of participation, what sort of collaboration do you think is possible between the two countries around climate change? Mm-hmm. Uh, so to go to the fires point, it is one of those areas where we wish we weren't as engaged with one another. But, yeah, you know, right. I'm from Victoria, um, and I remember it was a semi-regular event that we would have Canadian firefighters come to relieve ours, you know, after weeks of fighting terrible bushfires. Uh, and it is something that is deeply appreciated on, on both sides. Uh, no one can forget the sights and the photos of the red skies, the blood red skies of the Australian bushfires two years ago, which mm-hmm. were the not as fatal as what happened in my home state in 2009 when 180 people approximately died in a day uh, with the most savage fires we'd seen. Uh, But they were much larger, much longer, and displaced so many more people. Uh, And, in fact, hundreds of kilometres away, smoke alarms were going off in Canberra in buildings. Um, So uh, on climate change, uh, the Australian government has... Uh, raised its ambition that we've got a 43% commitment of reduction of emissions by 2030. Mm. What that will see is a substantial reduction, however, in our electricity generation. Um, You have a lot of hydro here. Uh, On the other side of the country, there's hydro and nuclear. Our grid is older. It is is primarily fossil fuel powered. Mm. We have record penetration of renewable energy. But to achieve that target, it has been outlined that we'll be looking at well over 50% of um, 60% of electricity generation will be renewable and overwhelmingly that is wind and solar not hydro is there a substantial enough plan to get to that target 
what the government um, will be making it will be investing particularly in um, re-engineering and supporting grid development you know so one of the things about Australia that is profoundly different to Canada that it, not being next door to the world's largest economy is that our electricity grid is about 5,000 kilometres long and long and thin and not plugged into anywhere else. So moving power from where it can be generated, particularly with renewable sources, which are in very different parts of the country than the traditional coal-fired power plants, moving that power around is key. And so the government has announced some investments in order to ensure that the grid can be upgraded to be make it more resilient and better at delivering that renewable energy. So that that, that will be key to it. But the rooftop, um, like, there are more than 2 million Australian homes, I think it's over 2.5 now, with rooftop solar. It's the highest penetration of rooftop solar in the world. And it isn't just in the northern part of the country, it's right across Melbourne as well. Um, we have a lot of sun. Yeah, you do have a lot of yeah. sun. We often don't here in British Columbia, but we do have a lot of uh, access to, to water. Yep. And water is, is just as important in all of this. Um, last, last question. Uh, we've talked about all kinds of serious things here, but... Uh, w- w- how, how does an Australian have fun in Canada? Uh, well, I tried to learn um, sort of cross-country skiing over, over winter. I, I thought you were going to say you are trying to pick up hockey, but okay. No, well, no, I'm going to go to ice skating in a minute. That's harder. Okay. I, and, and, of course, the lessons all got cancelled because um, of the lockdown that happened in Ontario and Quebec over January. But I got a few lessons in, and then the supply chain issues hit, and I couldn't buy skis to practice. Uh, ice skating, I'm a bit more reticent about. I, I have been ice skating once in my life. It was my 13th birthday in Melbourne in 1986, and I broke my arm. So I'm a little bit more reticent about picking up the ice skating. It's funny you would remember that. Yeah, it's an yeah. amazing birthday present um my friends wrote really mean things on the plaster cast too the next day at school that's part of a canadian truth <laughs> but um no so it's uh, around ottawa you know um now it gets a bit warmer we do day trips um you get out to see some amazing natural beauty um uh we've been down up to quebec city we've seen history you've got great museums uh i enjoy really enjoy cycling so since the weather's got warm i am 